I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. What we're doing is really bringing a whole new knowledge, a new way of doing art history by combining the technical and the interpretive. In this episode, I speak with Pia Gottschaller of the Getty Conservation Institute and Andrew Perchek and Zana Gilbert of the Getty Research Institute in part two of a conversation about the exhibition they're preparing for the Getty-funded regional project, Pacific Standard Time, LALA, Los Angeles, Latin America, to be launched in fall 2017. A few months ago, we met to discuss the development of the Getty exhibition of geometric abstract paintings made in Uruguay, Argentina, and Brazil during the second and third quarters of the 20th century. The idea was to get together periodically to see how the exhibition was developing, what discoveries were made, and what old ideas were abandoned. In our previous conversation, we discussed various questions the paintings raised regarding the materials with which they were made, the means of their manufacture and installation, and what tentative conclusions Tom Lerner and Pia Gottschaller of the Conservation Institute and Andrew Perchek of the Research Institute had reached by that time in the development of the exhibition. Today in our second conversation, I'll be talking with Andrew, Pia, and Zana Gilbert, research specialist in modern Latin American art at the Getty Research Institute, about the broader cultural context in which the paintings were made and first seen in the dynamic cosmopolitan centers of the rapidly modernizing post-World War II capitals of Latin America. At the time of the first episode, the working title for the exhibition was The Material of Form. I started this conversation by asking if the title had changed. Well, putting up with my rather rudimentary Spanish, it is Limites Concretos, post-war abstraction in Argentina and Brazil. What compelled the change in title? Well, a few reasons. Switching to English, concrete limit, which would be the English translation of limitis concretos is very much about what the work and the exhibition are about, both on a quite literal level in the sense that much of this concrete art was... Which is a term that was used at the time, right, the to define this art. Correct, right. I mean, abstraction was not a term in particular that the Argentinian artists liked to use. Yeah, so the artists um, were very concerned to differentiate themselves from um, being called abstract artists, and they used the term concrete uh, instead of the term abstract, because they weren't abstracting from reality. Mm -hmm. They were inventing. And is that true of all the artists in this exhibition, or was it true of the dominant artists in the exhibition? Uh, That goes for the Argentine artists in the exhibition, um, and... The, the Brazilian artists are all from a slightly later period, but they're also making work in the concrete and later neo-concrete vein. What do they mean by concrete? This is a subject of much discussion. One of their main uh, aims was to try to make art objects that uh, would be a part of the everyday world. So there was concern for making something that would be part of concrete reality, um, and there are references um, to you know, as much as an airport sign or something like that. So there's this concern for um, you know, being part of the everyday world. Did it have any association with concrete, the material, and the use of the material in modern architecture? Was there any kind of modernity about concrete as a material? 
Um, we uh, specifically didn't use the term concrete art because we didn't want to, um, people to think that it was art made of concrete. Um, there is no direct relationship between um, our works and the material concrete, but um, in the, there is a relationship between um, the building of Brasilia, for example, and the great modernist city, uh, capital city of Brazil, um, which use concrete. So there were parallels drawn with these kind of great moves in architecture. Yeah. But as, as Zena is suggesting, concrete limits the desire not to separate works of art from the everyday meant that the limit of the work itself became one of the most important aspects that artists concentrated on. I think it's also the idea of the limits of concrete art. So many of these artists, both in Brazil and Argentina, there was an enormous social, these were revolutionary and to a certain degree utopian. And the idea was for many of them that these artworks could figure in in the restructuring of society. And how much they were able to, or what the limits of concrete art or any art as a social force is another aspect of the... So was it a kind of a aesthetic or was it a, a, an intellectual di distinction you were trying to make from the previous title and material of form to the new title? I think it was a bit of both. Um, the material of form is still the name of our research project, actually. Um, you know, which is broader than the exhibition itself. But we really wanted to start again with the title, knowing that that title didn't have to be the name of the exhibition as well as the name of the research project. And one of the things that I think is extremely interesting that Pia has written about in her essay is the gap between the discourse of the artists and their um, actual execution of their works. So they were very bombastic about their claims and, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric and, you know, what the new exhibition title of Limites Concretos suggests is, you know, what were the material limits of what they're able to achieve in relation to, you know, their claims and hopes and desires, you know, of what their artworks would, would get to. Well, that gets us to Pia. I want to ask you a question because you're a conservator and we're in the, the company that we're talking with today. Of course, you're the only conservator. So but you're principally conservative with the materials of the works of art themselves and the, the properties of the paintings and the objects and the exhibition. And since we last spoke about all of this, you've had time to examine the paintings more closely and in more detail, and even to speak with some of the surviving artists. You've had conversations with at least one that I know that we talked about the other day. So what do you know now about the paintings that you didn't know for some four months ago? First of all, I would say that I feel somewhat more confident coming to some more generalizing conclusions about what they were up to. Because as you know, if you start to work in a new field, it takes a while until you feel, especially as a conservative, where you need to look very closely at the original object. So it takes a while until you've actually been able to look at so many works by the same artist that you feel you begin to see what was usual for somebody to do and what was maybe very unusual. If you just have one work and there's something very exotic about it, it's very hard to know if that was, however, a regular practice of the artist. So in that sense, I feel I've come away. You know, coming back to one subject that we discussed in the other podcast, I, I said that uh, we found that the Argentine artists working also a few years earlier than the Brazilian artists, that they were 
for the most part using traditional artist oil paints. And that still holds true, but uh, because we've taken more samples and we've been able to do more analysis, uh, it now appears as if there were um, sort of two subgroups within the group, uh, with uh, Alfredo Lito and Tomas Maldonado still being very, you know, classically trained. And when I spoke to Maldonado, he actually made a point of saying that he was trained at the academy, that he's a technically conservative artist, and he sort of took some pride in that, and they knew how to prepare a canvas, and they liked working on canvas. While Rotfus, the Uruguayan artist who worked with them, or who was associated with them, and uh, Raul Losa, also worked with house paint. And uh, Losa is maybe a particularly interesting case because he worked out over time that a mixture of house paint and traditional oil paint gave him the ideal paint because on the one hand he required the paint to have a certain uh, intensity of hue. He wanted, you know, because house paints very often have a lot of extenders and cheap materials in them that make them less brilliant in color. The oil paints generally have a lot more pigment and a lot less um, additives. And the house paint, on the other hand, dries more quickly and allowed him to polish these individual elements that he liked to work with in this period. Did he like the house paint for its material properties or was it yeah. less expensive and more available? It was a new... I suspect or... both, yeah. That's not always the most glamorous conclusion to come to, but I think cost was a big factor for all of them, certainly for the Argentines, but also for the Brazilians later on when importing paints became you know, made them extremely expensive. And so, yes, I think economic considerations are always involved. But in, in the loss, I find it interesting that he sort of picked the two primary qualities of both paints to combine them to make the ideal paint for him. But, but one of the fascinating things you could talk about is how the house paint is made not to show brushstrokes and, and, yes. and the hand. Yeah, adding the house paint to the traditional oil paints from the tube also means that you have an easier time applying a paint that is self-leveling, that doesn't preserve brushwork in the same way. So that helped him because he was trying to, like many of them, trying to create surfaces that were as devoid of individual handwriting and subjectivity as possible. Zan, I want to ask you a question. Uh, because you've come to the project recently, so you, you're new at least to our conversation about it all, and, and you've come as a specialist in this area, as a specialist in the avant-garde of Latin American painting and literature, I think, and perhaps music as well. So what questions did you bring to this team that weren't being asked before? Um, well, I think I, I came already with an interest in um, archives and documents, and particularly from a curatorial perspective. So, you know, trying to understand how uh, is a, the best way to show the kinds of material that you find in the Getty Research Institute's special collections um, and how that could inform our project or how we could think about our project and looking from these very material remains, you know, not the paintings, but different kinds of material remains from the period. And one of the things that got me started thinking about this was seeing um, in a book a photograph of the 1956 exhibition of concrete art in um, Sao Paulo where the poems um, were hung alongside the works of art. So I just started looking at the relationship between poetry 
um, and concrete art um, in both of the movements and also the sort of multidisciplinary aspects of these movements. Is it the case that in the process of developing the ideas of the, the exhibition, the first wave of concern was with the material of the paintings themselves? You spent a lot of time looking at them, you spent a lot of time t- taking samples from them, whatever you might have done. In other words, to understand what it was with the physical remains of this period, then there were the literary remains that come along that enrich the context in which the physical remains uh, were first considered by you. Is that fair enough to say that way, that you proceeded that way in the course of the exhibition? I think we continue to be very concerned still with the, <laughs> with the paintings and the, and the objects that we're working with. For me, I think it's very important from an art historical perspective and from the perspective of our project, and would be a great mark of success of collaboration if we're able to really you know, think about the ways in which uh, these materials might work together or inform each other in a kind of holistic view. We don't want in these projects to come in with our minds too set by previous anecdotes, scholarship, other things. We want to start with what the physical object can tell us, but we then want to go back to the archival material, the artists, the oral histories, and have a parallel track that digs deeply into primary accounts and historical material. Because one of the interesting things about this project is that the technical analysis that Pia and her team are doing is really completely new to this work. But there also hasn't been a great deal of archival work done on this material either. And the work that Zana and others is doing are really leading to new insights just as much as the technical analysis is. Our conversation turned to a group of literary materials, including a publication called Arturo by Argentine painter Thomas Maldonado with text by Rod Rothfuss, a Uruguayan artist. Tell us about the text and tell us about the importance of this publication and why did it only last one issue, if I'm correct, that it lasted just one issue? Yeah, that's the mystery. Well, first of all, um, the magazine Arturo was published in the summer of 1944, which is in the southern hemisphere, um, you know, could be between January and March. The cover was designed by Thomas Maldonado um, and it had an editorial um, committee that didn't include him. Um, What's very interesting about this, which is the first publication um, of what would later become the Concrete Art Group, is that it has this kind of automatist cover. What what do you mean by that? Well, it's an expressive drawing which could bear some comparison with uh, surrealist uh, automatic drawings, Uh um, which are made by sort of submitting to the uh, unconscious. Um, But then when you open the inside, in the inside cover is the statement Invención contra automatismo. So invention against automatism. So already, you know, within the first few seconds of encountering this magazine, um, you know, there are contradictions and the whole magazine is rife with, um, with them. And that's been much commented upon by art historians. Well, the cover doesn't look like a Maldonado that I would have recognized. Exactly. So, it, it, as you described, it's like automatic drawing. It, for those who are imagining this, listening to the podcast, one might think of, as you say, surrealist, one might think of early Jackson Pollock, that kind of free drawing. Why did he do it if it doesn't look like what we think of his work uh, generally? Well, this is much before um, 
or at least a little bit before the declaration of concrete art and the association with concrete art. And I think at this time he was very young, um, still uh, le younger than 20, I think he was 19. He's still experimenting with abstraction. So already they're committed to abstraction, which is already a leap um, in the context that they're living in. But it's, it's very interesting to think about it in relation to their to later works, you know, from a year later even. His later work? His later works and the rest of the concrete artists. Then the most important uh, contribution to the magazine is, in terms of kind of art historical uh, significance, is the essay by Rod Rothfuss, uh, which is The Frame, A Problem of um, Contemporary Art. And in it, he proposes that... The frame is a device that is connected to illusionistic painting, a figurative painting, and really can be discarded uh, in the context of abstraction. Um, it's considered to be a window into the world, and it's really connected with art all the way back to the Renaissance. So his proposition is to start working with the shaped canvas, um, and that is an art object in which the composition um, is the determinant of the shape of the work itself. Right. Was it like a manifesto on his part, or just simply... An article. Um, or is I he think, making a case for it? Yeah, it, it's not um, a manifesto, but he's making a case. Yeah, he's arguing for it. Um, and subsequently, these artists really um, adopted that proposition. Um, the reason that they only published one um, is a mystery to me. But uh, I think that there were uh, conflicts between the group and that later saw um, the division of artists like uh, Maldonado and uh, Hlito and the other group, Kosice, Ardenkin, and Rothfuss, uh, and they split into uh -huh. two. And what does Arturo mean? Um, that, again, is a mystery. We were just speculating on that. Actually, it's interesting that uh, I haven't read any accounts um, that give us a reason for the naming of the magazine. We then looked at a poem titled Ligia by the Brazilian Augusto de Campos from 1953. De Campos was a concrete poet, I asked Zana about his association with the development of the term concrete as it was applied to different art forms. As uh, we discussed before, concrete art was already in existence you know, from the 30s and in, the, in Argentina in the 40s. And then you know, in the 50s, it was employed by the artists in Brazil, and in particular in relation to the architecture, as I mentioned. They... Uh, were very interested in internationalism as well. Um, they were interested in colour and composition um, and the gestalt, and they were intimately connected with the Brazilian artists um, that are part of our study. So we can see a lot of common interests, and one of the greatest, I think, is this attempt to not have traces of individualism in the work. Um, so they all use the same font in their poems. They, they don't uh, sign them individually. Um, you really can't tell the difference between one poet's poem uh, and another um, by looking at them or really by reading them or experiencing them. Um, they were interested in the sonic and visual qualities. Um, of well, describe to us the visual qualities of the poem and why it would have some bearing, some relationship to the paintings. Um, so in the case of um, the work that we have here in front of us, um, it's actually a love poem, but not as you know it. And each of the words is coloured, um, the, the text is a different colour. So, Ligia uh, is in red, and the next word, Finge, is in green. Um, and these words are not arranged in a traditional uh, right-to-left 
sequence for reading, but they're um, arranged on the page as a composition, a visual composition. And is the color determined by the visual composition or by the meaning of the word? Uh, both. Right. Yeah, in terms of um, when to stress. And they're very interested in the, um, the rhythm. So when this poem would be read, you would hear gaps between each of the words. And then in some cases, they'd be read all as one word. So there's a definite play in terms of the physical experience, the kind of sonic experience of the word. In some cases, the color, the use of a color, uh, two colors within one word picks out another word within the word. Uh, so if you're, for example, um, let me use the English example at the bottom. This poem is written in five different languages. Um, and the, the last line reads, so only lonely titi. So in this case, you know, there's this play of sounds, um, but in this text, the li of only and the li of lonely are in red, whereas the rest of the text is in blue. Um, so it's trying to emphasize the, uh, the li, li, um, the sound. This is actually um, one of the series that was exhibited um, as part of the uh, concrete uh, exhibition in 1956 that I mentioned before. Um, not this exact one because they made uh, what they called poster poems. But what I think is very interesting for us in relation to the paintings is that they redeployed their poems across time. So they may have written the poem um, in 19... Say he, he wrote this poem in 19... 53, or he composed it, but then there's another edition in 1968 where he maybe he intervenes in it and he changes some of the words uh, from Portuguese to French. Um, and then there's another version of it in which Caetano Veloso is performing it in you know the next iteration. And then there's another iteration. So something I think that has challenged us um, is thinking about the authenticity of the works and you know whether they were made on a given date or um, if later on they reworked them or if they conceived of the work at a given date and later on executed them um, in terms of the painted objects. So we're really thinking about that in terms of their methodology. Were they equally sound pieces as visual pieces? In the case of the concrete poems, yeah. certainly. Yeah. Uh -huh. So they had readings, they had readings in the galleries with the paintings or... I don't know. In the case of um, the concrete art exhibition in 1956, I don't know if they were ever performed. That's something that would be really interesting to find out. In the case of the concrete artists in Argentina, they had recitals. Um, most of the Madi artists' exhibitions were introduced um, or closed by a recital of concrete music. Uh, so we introduced another exhibition group and a name to this podcast, Madi. Uh, Andrew or Pia, do you want to tell us about the Mahdi group and what distinguishes that group from the others? Well, all of these artists seem to have been very strong personalities and so the Mahdi group underwent a split at one point. But initially, after the Mahdi artists, Kusicu, Rotfus and Ladinkin had split away from the Argentine concrete artists, they uh, underwent another split when Ardenkin moved to Paris in 1948 and he and Kusicu both claimed that they were the sort of founding Fathers, and so from that moment on, there were there were basically two Madi groups, one in Europe and one in uh, in Buenos Aires. The Madi artists were had a more playful side to them. They were interested in Dada, which the others weren't. They were interested in uh, making movable sculptures that really involved uh, the viewer to be physic. Like there's this beautiful sculpture by Kusicu called Roji. 
which consists of a number of wooden pieces that are bolted together, but they remain movable and the viewers, the visitors are invited to make their own sculpture, as it were. So you have, uh, in the process of this exhibition, coming to terms with the exhibition, you spent some time with the objects themselves and uh, you came to understand the material conditions of them, the material manufactured them, so, and then you put them into context with the literary materials to kind of to enhance the kind of art historical context for them, and you begin to map out the relationships between the individuals and the centers of production, whether it be Buenos Aires, whether that might be, and so forth. Did you find, Pia, uh, as a conservator in, in the process of all of you writing this technical art history, of, of there being technical relationships of real interest and revelation for you between the painted works you're working at and the literary materials that you associated with them? Other than the kind of general one that we were talking about with the compost and the kind of colored poetry. Uh, yes, I uh, would say that was definitely the case. Uh, you know, they even, uh, because most of them were very left-leaning Marxist, uh, sometimes, you know, Communist Party card-carrying members, they felt very strongly about dialectical materialism. And even though that's not the same as, you know, uh, materialism when, when I think about it, I would say that um, the eternal conflict that every visual artist is in, where on the one hand you have, you know, high-flying utopian ideals about how you want an artwork to be, you know, uh, dissociated from reality and a thing of its own that can be appreciated by any member of society uh, who maybe has never even seen another abstract artwork before. And, that, and on the other hand, however, having to realize these very idealist aims is tricky. And um, Umberto Eco at one point uh, wrote very beautifully about this gap between the intention of the artist and the actual execution. And that's where you often find the most interesting moments in, in an artist's creative career, where this gap, where the artist moves to the gap and when he or she moves out again and what that gap actually is. Something that Zana and P and I have been talking about, about this connection between the literature and the visual arts is what concrete means in both, in the sense that in the poetry, they don't use a lyrical language. They use a very concrete, everyday language. And just as the artists used everyday materials and wanted their works very much to be within an everyday and not a fine art environment, not museum objects, but objects of everyday use. And then something that I know Pia and Zen have been thinking about are the whole question of individuality versus collectivity in both groups. That, as Zen has pointed out, the poets didn't sign their work and use the same font so that it was made it difficult to tell one individual for another. And Pia's looked quite a bit at how the artists have either made their work unique or, or not. Or not, yeah. So there are different degrees of, of um, desire to eliminate any trace of the hand. So in Argentina, in the beginning, I would say it's not so pronounced, and uh, the artists we were discussing already were actually okay with having brushwork seen as an indicator of the fact that it was handmade by an individual. And then as you move on, 
Some artists, especially the ones in, in Sao Paulo, who very often also had careers as graphic designers and architects and lithographers, they did a lot of polishing, for example, in order to get rid of those traces again. Uh, and then later on in the neo concretist period, we have two examples from Ligia Clark, who then started using a spray gun or craftsmen that she asked to execute the work for her because she desired to create surfaces and work with materials like car lacquers that are everyday, as Anne was saying, but they're actually requiring of a great skill. You know, it's very difficult to spray paint a car well without making any tears and, and things like that. So she outsourced that to other people, but, uh, but she still insisted, and that's what I maybe also meant by the gap, but she still insisted on making them, on having them made by a craftsman with his hands or her hands, rather than just having a machine make them. We then turn to a larger discussion of technical art history, that is, looking at the material properties of an artwork and how they inform our understanding of a work's meaning and art historical importance. This is something that art historians, or museum-based art historians in any case, are increasingly interested in, but it's something that is not often explored in great depth in exhibitions. I asked how the conservation aspects of this project will be represented in the exhibition. I, th I think our aim is uh, to present some of that information to the uh, visitors of the exhibition, uh, which in, you know, is a bit of a challenge because in many cases the things that we're finding are either on a minute scale, on a microscopic scale, or are um, requiring the visitors to walk up really closely to the surface so they can see for themselves what it is that we're talking about. But one way that this kind of information has been presented to visitors in the past in a very successful way, it seems, was in the Pollock exhibition where uh, a number of videos were made, each one focusing on a particular subject, and the videos were displayed in a separate room. I think what we would maybe go for is uh, to have a number of stations in the exhibition space so that viewers can listen and look at the same time. Andrew, from an art historian's point of view, how do you see the interrelationship between, or the showing in the galleries between uh, the technical materials, the te technical information and the paintings themselves? Well, I think it's one of the really interesting challenges of the project because I think it's very important that the artworks for the viewers work as artworks and not as illustrations of a technical analysis. Their importance is not just whether they were polished or made with house paint, but really that they work on an intellectual and aesthetic level. At the same time, what we're doing is really bringing a whole new knowledge, a new way of doing art history by combining the technical and the interpretive. I guess I'm hearing from you that this uh, in interest in and maybe even emphasis on the technical investigation into these works of art is not arbitrary, but it's actually central to somewhat greater understanding of the ambitions of the artists at the time and what they intended their, their, their works to, to suggest or to, to represent. So it's got be, to be in there. But it's also, as I understand it, there's going to be a publication after the exhibition opens that will be the result of sustained research because I don't know that the people listening to the podcast know that essays have to be delivered up to the editor of the catalog about a year in advance of the exhibition itself. So that doesn't mean you stop research at that point. You've continued to do research. And once the exhibition is up and you're looking at all these works of art in the room and you're talking to people and you might have a conference and people come and so forth, then you'll be thinking about new things and new information will come up and things you hadn't thought of you'll think of at that point. So you're going to put some of that into a second 
publication, a kind of conference paper publication or something. Tell, tell us a, about that. Well, I think one of the most exciting parts of this project is that at the Getty in Los Angeles, we have about 50 works from the Patti Cisneros collection, the, the greatest private collection of this work. But in terms of the larger material of form project that we were talking about before, we also have partners, teams of conservators, scientists, art historians, working both in Buenos Aires and in Sao Paulo, who are studying additional works in public collections there. And the larger project, the publication that will come afterwards, combines the research of all three, we hope will combine the research of all three groups. Well, we're going to come together again one more time um, with this podcast, and that'll be when the pictures are hung in the galleries. And it'll be interesting to see what decisions you made about putting them in the galleries and how you come to some conclusion about integrating the technical materials and information in the galleries as well. So I want to thank you for the time you've given us uh, this afternoon, and we look forward to seeing you again in about, uh, about 12 months. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud, or visit getty.edu slash podcasts for more resources. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.